Pretty cool. Thank you, Lee. Well, uh, this morning we uh, kind of wrap up the greatest, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, it's been a, you know, one of the things that I realized at the very beginning, I went in, at the first week of this series, I said, you shouldn't have made this four weeks, this should have been like six or eight weeks. I, you know, you make that mistake, but then you go, what are you going to do? Now it's too late. But we're going to sum it up uh, best we can today. And I was looking at 1 John chapter 4. In John's uh, first letter of correspondence to the churches, you know, there's some really troubling verses in Scripture. And these are kind of, these are a little troubling verses in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John 4 9, it says this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It was what Ian was just talking about a couple of minutes ago, right? We get it. This is a gospel. I've preached from this. These, these, man, if you can't preach this, you shouldn't be up front. I mean, honestly, these are gospel verses. They talk about the atonement. They talk about Christ's sacrifice, God's love for us. Those are the verses, and that's how they're always preached. God's love, God's sacrifice. I get it. What we usually don't hear is how John applied those verses. For John says in verse 11, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Then he follows by saying this, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I gotta tell you, um, I'm not 100% sure what that exactly, what that all means. But I'm pretty sure God didn't want to give us a lesson, or John didn't want to give us a lesson on the invisibility of God. That wasn't the point there. What he might be saying, what I think he's saying, is that the invisible God is made visible to everybody around us when people see the love of God's people to them. See, I, I really think the invisible God is made visible to people through the love that his people have for one another. One writer said this. He said, his love for us prompts our love for others, and that love makes God visible to the whole world. You know, a few years ago I did a wedding in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Lancaster was Amish country, right? And I remember, I remember driving, I was driving through town, and there was a guy with a buggy, and I felt like getting out and taking a picture, but that would have been weird and creepy. So I just, I just you know, I kind of looked at him in the side, and, you know, he just kind of looked at me and a little smile. And, and uh, look, if you're from another culture, and we do have people who, um, we have folks at the crossing who are from another culture. If you don't know uh, who the Amish were, the Amish came uh, in the, uh, you know, early part of the 18th century, and around 1850 or so, the Amish looked around there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and they said, we like 1850. We think we're going to stay here. We're going to stay right in 1850. We're not going to go any further. Um, uh, that, and that's the, way, that's the way they are. They don't drive cars. They ride horse and buggies. They don't wear stylish clothes. You know, they're... Uh, well, actually, they wear black, right? And that's, that kind of looks style. I'm wearing black. And maybe they were wearing, maybe they're ahead of us, you know? Maybe that's it. Anyway, they wear black and white pretty much. And, um, you know, they're not really comfortable with electricity, so they use kerosene lamps to light their home. It, it, I, I'm not knocking them when I say they're different. I'm not knocking them. 
every year. In fact, people come from all over the country to see the Amish. And some people, there's got to be some people who think they're play acting. You know, this is like tourist stuff, and really they go home and they got all the conveniences and they're dressing in modern clothes and stuff. But, but that's not, you see, that's them. They're for real. And one of the things that they possess is a very real and a very simple faith. Ed Robinson uh, told the story of... Uh, the events of October 2006, and as they were a prime example to the world of this simple faith that the Amish have. On October, October 2nd, 2006, a man who ran a, a milk route in town, Charles Carl Roberts, went into a one-room Amish schoolhouse carrying guns. You, maybe you remember it. He went into the schoolhouse, he sent the boys out, he sent the adults, and he tied up the young women, children, really. And when the police came, and he knew they were outside, he began firing. And he fired 18 shots, 10 of them directly at the heads of those girls, ages 6 through 13, killing two of them immediately, three died shortly thereafter in the hospital before turning the gun on himself. You remember the story. One, the youngest, suffered serious brain damage, and uh, to this day does not walk and does not talk, and sits in a wheelchair. The others who were wounded have healed enough to go back to school and go back to their lives, but they will forever bear the scars of the shooting of October 2nd, 2006. Now what was significant about that horrific event was the way the Amish responded. They did not respond with hate or vengeance. Rather, they responded with agape, love and forgiveness. The families of the victims took their daughters home that day and they, they, they laid them out for all the visitors to see and all the rawness of the horror of that day. But that very afternoon, the same, the same afternoon, two of the elders from the Amish community went to the shooter's wife and three children and told them that they were forgiven and if the Amish community did not hold this sin against them. But they did more than that. They gave Robert's wife money to take care of his funeral expenses, as well as additional money to care for the expenses that surely they would have following the death of their father and husband. When the funeral for Charles Carl Roberts was held, fully half of the people who attended the funeral came from the Amish community. And you know, as you might expect, you know, newspaper vans rolled into town like oranges, I mean, that very day. And every news agency in this country and some from around the world, you know, went there. And, you know, they, they didn't respect, you know, distance or anything like that. They went right up to the Amish people and they kept asking the questions. You know, first they were asking themselves the questions, who, who are these people? You know, what planet did they fly in from that they would do stuff like this? And they were asking the community themselves. They kept, they kept asking them, you know, why are you doing this? You know, wh wh why does your community respond in this way to a murderer who has taken the lives of your children? And they kept coming back with the exact same answer again and again. Well, it's our way. It's our way. On that afternoon, folks, on that afternoon and in the days that followed, the invisible God was made visible. 
through the acts of those people who don't ride automobiles or wear stylish clothes, but by their act of agape love and forgiveness bore witness to the invisible God. A Mennonite scholar at Georgetown University was asked to explain why the Amish community forgave Roberts. And the scholar said this. He said, the Amish believed that God had told them to forgive. And so they simply acted on what God told them to do. The emotions would follow, and they would sort out their grief at another time. But then, that's their way. When you read this passage that Lee just read for us, 1 Corinthians 13, and uh, which you, you read about what God says about love that we are to have for one another, the question that comes right out to me, and I've asked myself throughout this whole series, how do you do it? <laughs> Great. Now how do you do it? You know what I think the Amish would say? I think the Amish would say, you just do it. You do it. You respond with kindness and patience. You reach out to others. You move past the things that will keep you from moving ahead. You go right, blow right through them, like envy and boastfulness and pride and self-seeking and record-keeping, like we talked about last week. And you move forward by putting front and center some other things. And then you let your emotions follow behind. Well, what are the other things, as we close this series, what are the other things that Paul is talking about to move forward with. Well, number one, Paul says love rejoices with truth. Love rejoices with truth. In reading through 1 Corinthians 13, we come to two phrases that contain, you know, in that verse, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And, I, you know, I'm persuaded that when Paul says love does not delight in evil, he's not talking about my evil. Like, I know I'm committing evil, and I, like, really just want everybody to know I'm committing evil. I don't think he's talking about that at all. I think he's talking about when other people do evil. One paraphrase put it this way. Love is not happy when other people go wrong. It's not happy when other people go wrong. You know, every, every so often I catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror, and I realize that at times I delight in the failure of other people. Every now and then I see myself, and it's kind of an ugly picture. Every now and then I, I feel this, I don't know, just sick kind of delight when I see someone else fall. It, it's, you know what I think? I think it's the essence of gossip. We get together, we talk about other people. We don't talk about, gee, you know, let me tell you how wonderful this person is. This person is this and this, and we, you know, they're so nice. What a great family. We talk about their, fa their failures. That's what gossip is. Everybody would get really bored if you're talking about successes and virtues all the time. They just would. And I think one of the reasons that we delight in other people's failures is that we think that somehow by tearing down our neighbor's house, ours gets taller. That's some magic. And we get some comfort out of that. And that's you know, particularly true if the person who falls is successful or is just ahead of you or is admired. It's particularly true then. You know, Benjamin Disraeli, the Prime Minister of Britain in the 19th century, middle 19th century, twice he was Prime Minister, said, the mistakes of the great are the consolation of fools. We often take consolation in someone else's failure. Doing that is not only not loving, it is the definition and it is the essence of selfishness. 
But you know, we live in a culture that tempts us to do that all the time, don't we? A culture that majors in looking at other people's failures. It is everywhere. You know, the producers of the, uh, uh, the tabloids and gossip television, there's a lot of gossip TV shows right now, they must get down on their knees every single day and thank God for Lindsay Lohan, Bill Cosby, and Amanda Byrne. Politicians like Anthony Weiner and Jim McGreevy and Elliot Spitzer and John Edwards and Mark Sanford, they are pure gold. They dropped out of heaven for these people, they must think. You know, the televangelist scandals, some of you may be old enough to remember those in the 1980s. You know, and then Bill and Monica, uh, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, they sold magazines. You know, look at those Kardashians. Well, let's see what they're up to now. Why is Bruce wearing eyeliner? What is that all about now? And somehow we take kind of a, a bit of delight in it all. And we're tempted to delight in evil. Look, if they only talked about what the other people did well, all these magazines would go out of business like in a month, right? It's like, what is this? I don't care what good charity, this, that, that. I'm not into that. We laugh and delight at the sins of others. And you know what? When the Bible talks about sin, it is talking about the ultimate malady of the human race. And to laugh at sin, it's almost like laughing at cancer. You know? You know, when someone makes a cancer joke, it's like, eh, what? No, don't, don't, don't do that. Sin leads to broken dreams and homes and lives. And folks, ultimately, the Bible says, and Jesus said again and again and again, it leads to hell. Ultimately. And love doesn't do that. And when you really care about people as God cares about you, you don't delight when other people are going wrong. You know, you look at grandparents. I, I, I think this whole phrase is captured by grandparents. You look at grandparents. My sisters now are grandparents. Man, they always get new pictures, and it's like this, and it's like, well, you know what she did? And I'm like, oh, you know, it's, yeah, it's all right. I mean, you know, they're not a genius. I mean, they're supposed to be doing that at this age, you know? And, um, uh, you know, but you look at a grandparent, and they're always ready to tell you about the latest achievements and the report card and what school they got accepted into and that they're the leading goal scorer in their team. And you go into their homes, it's like a children's museum. I mean, I, uh, a year ago, we, we kind of uh, we're, were emptying out my mom's... Uh, who passed away last year, uh, emptying out her condo down in Florida. We must have taken a hundred pictures down from the wall. I mean, it was after a while, it was like, oh, here's a picture of her, here's a picture of her. It's like, if you will, it's not that cute anymore. It's not even that interesting. But it's like, they're, they're just everywhere. You couldn't, they can't help but talking about them. But if one of their grandchildren are not doing well, and you say, well, how's, how's, how's Johnny doing? And all of a sudden, they get this look on their face, and in hushed tones, they say something like, well, you know, he's struggling right now. And if they're Christians, they'll look at you and they'll say something like, would you, would you pray for him? And folks, there is not a scintilla of glee or delight in what they say. Not an ounce. See, that's the speech of love. Love is not gladdened when people go wrong. But then Paul flips the coin. He says, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. That is, love is gladdened by goodness. So that means that when people, you know, they open up a church down the block from me, and all of a sudden they got, you know, 700 people coming in. They're lining the door there, and some of our people even go over there. But people are getting saved there. I'm supposed to be glad. Yeah, I am. Because God is working, and his truth is marching on. 
And we're glad at that. And we delight in that. Love is delighted when truth and goodness prevail wherever it prevails. Then Paul said love protects. Love always protects. And he uses the word, Greek word stego for protect. Um, other translations, that's how the NIV says it, love protects. Other translations say love bears all things, which is kind of a nice picture. I like that. Uh, and the word stego is, is one of those words that has a lot of different meanings. It, it, it's used of a ship plowing through the Mediterranean, and the, all of a sudden the waves come, and it's going up and down, and it's battering against the side of the ship, but it remains firm. It stands against it. You know, it's, it's, it's bearing it. The word is also used about a roof. And, you know, the, the, the rain's coming down and the wind's coming down and in the northeast, the snow is coming down, but it doesn't leak and it, it bears the force of the weather. It's used of soldiers. This word stego is used of soldiers guarding a fortress and the enemy comes and they throw everything against that front gate, everything against the walls, and it's the soldiers do not retreat. They stay there. They stand their ground. They bear the weight of the attack. It's used in that sense too. Another uh, translation of stego is to protect. Love protects. You go, and you can see that. Yeah, even in the examples I just gave. The, the ship doesn't sink to the bottom of the ocean. It protects its cargo. The roof that does not give in to the wind and rain protects the inhabitants inside the house. The soldiers who stand against the attack protect the fortress and all the people, all the townspeople that took refuge inside. So the same word is translated, trans, you know, lates, love protects, love protects, and it does that, doesn't it? It does. One of the wonderful things about people who love you is that they do not deliberately expose you to things that hurt you. They do the best to, you know what, protect you. See, that's what people who love you do. I read of a missionary who had a plaque in his home this is great. How about this? Looking over this at dinner. Uh, the, abs the absent are safe here. The absent are safe here. In other words, we ain't talking about you. We're not tearing you down. You're safe. You're among friends here. I, I would imagine that would change a lot of dinner, dinner conversations, wouldn't it? Uh, to know that you're in fellowship with people who keep your reputation safe and clean even when you're not present is a wonderful thing. People who, who you know you're safe with. People who you can say anything in the world to and it's not going to be tweeted and it's not going to be talked about on social media in a negative light. People who, who know will, will always put you in the best possible light. You know that. You know, when you're around people like that, that is precious. You, can, you know, it's almost like you would pay for that. To know that you have people like that who, who get information, they're privy to information, and they don't go up to somebody and says, you know what, this is for prayer, uh, you know, uh, concerns only, but did you know that so-and-so was going to say, I want you to pray for that way. Baloney. You know, baloney. Forgive me. Baloney. And you know, it's not going to end up like that. People who protect you. Dinah Craig, a novelist and a poet in the 19th century, wrote this. She said, oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts or measure words, but pouring them all out just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep the wheat that is worthwhile, and with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away. In a fellowship where there is love, people do whatever they can to protect the other person.
Then Paul says love trusts. Agape love trusts. Uh, not only protects, but it trusts. Always, in fact, he said, it always trusts. And I kind of wish, you know, you read that and you kind of wish he didn't, uh, he didn't put that always in there. Because I'm enough of a cynic to think that if you take this as your life verse and you take it at face value, you're going to be in all kinds of trouble. You're in all kinds of trouble. You know, one of the difficult uh, lessons in life that we learned kind of early on is that there are many people who can lie not only with a straight face, but with conviction. As George Costanza says, it's not a lie if you believe it. And you know what? There's a lot of people who lie so much that they really think it's real. That they think it's real. I'm convinced of that. I've dealt with people all throughout life, in all walks of life, like that. So saying that love trusts means that you're setting yourself up to be a patsy to buy the Brooklyn Bridge, basically, you know, every couple of weeks or so. But you're at the mercy of some charlatan, some psychopathic tendency type person who comes down the pike. Look, it's true that love often is a little bit naive, but always trust, always, really? How about on Tuesdays? You know, I'll be an easy mark on Tuesdays. No, it says always. As a Christian, what does it have to do with? What, what is Paul talking about? Well, I think it has to do with how we see people and how we see God working in the lives of people. Paul treated the Corinthians this yeah, he, he treated them this way. And look, at, I got to tell you something. If you ever read the book of Corinthians, read the book of Corinthians. You'll start feeling good about yourself, number one. You know, I, I'd be honest with you. You know, you're reading about this, this, these people and they're, they're, they're taking each other to court. There's all kinds of sexual looteness. They're getting, they're getting drunk at the communion table. I mean, in a certain community, they're all getting drunk. Um, uh, you know, he's talking about the gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, we had the last, the last series. And they were saying, my gift is better than your gift. That's, that, they weren't using it to, to foster unity. They were breaking the fellowship apart because they're saying, my gift is better than your gift. They weren't even, oh, they had some questions about the resurrection. Well, let's talk about the resurrection again. Can we talk about that again? This is the church. Why would anyone trust that true? You know what wisdom says? Beware. Buyer beware. But Paul trusted them. Why? Why did he trust them? He begins his letter. First Corinthians chapter 1. He begins his letter by saying this. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lock any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul could trust was that these folks, as weak as they were, as you know, they're like driving a car and it's in fifth and you jam it into third. You know, that was their life. Sound familiar? You know? Even though they were weak and it was difficult, God had a work going on in their lives. And Paul knew it. 
Whatever else he saw, he could be sure that if God was at work, God would keep working until they stood before Jesus Christ. And that perspective helps when we're looking at a brother and sister. You know, you look at some people and um, you realize, uh, you know, you're saying, hey, they need some work. I mean, they need a lot of work. And I, I need work, but they need capital W. They really need a lot of work. You know what? It really helps you when, you when you realize that God isn't finished with them yet. And by the way, he's not finished with you yet either. You know, the people who are like, they're, they're under construction. It's like, you know, you're driving down a highway now. You go on Eagle Rock Avenue. You're like this. I feel like I'm in a raceway and I'm, you know, the, all the piles and everything. They're just everywhere. And that's, that's what their life is like. But you know what? Paul believed that God was doing a work in their lives. And ultimately, they would be magnificent creatures. See, he could see that. He knew that. In Philippians chapter 1, he said, God is working to this until the day of Christ Jesus to make you like himself. See, that's what Paul trusted. He was trusting God's work and the faithfulness of God to continue working in them. And in that sense, you could trust what God's doing in their lives. Love trusts. But then he says something else. He said, love hopes. Paul says that this love of which he speaks always hopes. You know, you read, you read classical historians, and they say of the Greeks, uh, you see, whatever the Greeks, they had everything. They had these big amphitheaters, and they had sports teams, and they, you know, they, they, they had poets, and they had guys who would, who would uh, you know, stand in front of a crowd, and everybody would be mesmerized. They had the, you know, great lecturers and, and orators and everything else. And, and the guy said, um, this one guy said, uh, if, they, if the Greeks didn't have it, if they didn't have something they needed, they invented it. And for the most part, that was pretty true. Anything they wanted, they had, he says. But he was wrong. There was one thing that the Greeks did not have. They did not have hope. Because they did not have hope, they gave themselves over to all kinds of sensual indulgences. It's true of that culture, folks. It's true of our own. The historian Matthew Arnold put it this way. He said, on that, sad, on that sad pagan world, disgust and secret loathing fell. Deep weariness and sated lust made human life a living hell. Paul said it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He said, they were without God and without hope. Without God and without hope. And if there was one Greek city that typified the hopeless condition of people, it was the city of Corinth. I can't go into it right now, but it was a great throbbing commercial center. It had been devastated a uh, hundred years before, but it, it's kind of laying on an isthmus, and it's a, it's a great trading route. And, you know, uh, finally they said, you know, this would be, let's, let's put all our... our retired soldiers here and we'll start a, a community and people from all over the world came and they came for commerce and, and at the city of the center of that city there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite the goddess of fertility the goddess of sexual love where every night and if you can even imagine this where every night between five and ten thousand temple prostitutes would come down and do their bidding. And in a commercial center like Corinth, you can imagine with all the sailors coming in and out, they want a lot of converts to their religion. A lot of converts, I gotta say. And they were despised. Corinth was despised in the ancient world. In fact, a Corinthian was understood as someone who was totally debauched. Debauched. To totally. It was full of slimy worms, thieves, robbers, idolaters, sexual perverts. It was a dark, place, it was a morally hopeless place, they were without God and without hope. Then one day, 
Then one day, a little Jewish man, well, you know, Jewish man showed up and, and he was afraid. In fact, that's what he said he was. He said I was, he was very afraid. And he felt very weak and he was very timid. And he, 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 he stood up and he started talking one by one about Jesus. And I'm, I'm sure he was, at first, the first person he went up to, he was probably scared stiff. And they probably walked away and they were mocking him and they were saying, stay away from that nut. This little, this little Jew over here, stay away from him. There's something wrong with him. But then some others came and maybe some laughed, but some stayed. And they listened, and they heard the message of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and raised again. And somehow, one by one, it started to take hold. And these people cast themselves with a reckless abandon upon God's truth and grace. And you know what? One by one, they were changed. Listen to how Paul expressed it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know, this is how they were changed, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And look at verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These folks who have been filthy, now because of Paul's gospel, because of the Spirit of God, they were clean. Not perfect, but God was cleaning them up. They had been unholy, now they were set apart for God. They were wicked, but because of, of Paul's preaching gospel, the judge of all the universe had declared them righteous. They were changed. The gospel came to the men and women at Corinth, and you know when it comes to, it comes to the people of Livingston, and West Caldwell, and Roseland, and, and you know Cedar Grove, and it's coming today through churches, through people, through God's people, and when people hear the gospel, and when people embrace the gospel, that person, that work of Jesus Christ, they are changed, and the filthy are cleansed, and the unholy are set apart for God, and the wicked are declared righteous. Look, whenever you see a woman or a man, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, at the very moment you're talking to them, no matter who they are, where they are, what they've done, don't dismiss them as hopeless. If you're someone who takes the gospel of Jesus Christ seriously, to say that someone is hopeless is to slam the door in the face of God. This love of which Paul speaks always hopes. You know why he always hopes? Because with Jesus Christ, there is always hope. Amen? And then he said this, love perseveres. He said love perseveres. It endures. I had a real interesting talk with a couple of guys yesterday, and uh, they stated, stated their belief that things, you know, we're talking about the world, and, you know, things, you know, ISIS and this, and you just, you know, you read the paper now, you're like, hey, I mean, you know, you, you don't even want to get the paper. And um, so you're reading it, and they go, well, you know what, I don't really think, both of them said, I don't, I don't really think that the world is worse today than it ever was. It's just that we hear about it so quickly now, social media, right? I mean, you hear, you know, this, oh, God, help them, these, these families with this plane crash. It's been freaking me out all week, i got to tell you. It's been freaking me out. And, you know, I, I, I'm reading the story, and we know about it, 
15 minutes after the thing goes off the, the radar is saying, you know, there's a plane that's, that's missing. We, we hear about that now. We hear about, we hear about the, and they said, you know what, it's not that more bad things are happening, it's just that we hear about the bad things. And you know what, it, I, I, you know, I get it. I, I, to a certain degree, I, I think that is true because of cable and everything else. But there is one thing that is indisputable, folks. There are more Christians who are being killed for their faith today than ever before in history. Don't argue with me. Don't give me another. I, this is an indisputable fact. I know that there are more Christians have been killed in the last hundred years than in the previous 1900 years combined. Christians are being killed all over the world today. We don't hear about it, but they are. Today, today, folks, today, we're here and it's, it's really nice. I mean, this is, this is cool. I, I, I just, I love our place. And I'm comfortable and, you know, it's a little warm right now, but you know what? Yeah, I, I'll go down there and I'll cool off and it's, you know, it's whatever. Today, men and women of faith, today, will die. They will die for their faith and they are living their last few hours in life. Many people are just continue to suffer for their faith. Others are going to make decisions today that, they, you know what, they're going to suffer, they're going to lose everything they own. They're going to be, they're going to be walking on foot because they are Christ followers. Look, if you think that Romans 8.28, remember Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you think that's a promise that you'll have a middle class life in a lovely little church in a nice little town where you may even get a pass to a country club, you know, and eat out two, three times a week. You are wrong. You're wrong. And you need to know that. Paul did not promise that, nor did he ever experience it personally. When they whipped Paul, he bled. When they threw stones at him, he groaned and fell to his knees. When he was exposed to the elements, he froze. Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world have been imprisoned and they have cried out to God for deliverance and no angel came to open up the gates. No one showed up. No earthquakes had come to deliver them. They suffered, they bled, and they died. And they do so today. So you ask, why? Well, what in the world? Why would, you know, there's no line, long line signing up for that, it seems like. Why would, why would Paul do it? Why do Christians do it today? Are Christians massacres? They just like to be beaten up. Paul answered in 2 Corinthians 5. You know what he said in 2 Corinthians 5? He said this. Christ's love constrains us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. The deep conviction kept Paul going that God loved him. God saved him, the chief of sinners, and he saves people today. He saves them today. That's why he did it. And that's why Christians do it today. You know, look, look, look at the life of the Lord. You know what's most impressive? It's not that he turned water into wine. Yeah, that's kind of neat at a party. You know, invite Jesus to your next party. It's like, hey, wait a minute now. The party's just starting now. Look who just showed up. That's not the most impressive thing. The most impressive thing is not that he walked on the, on the lake into in the, the Sea of Galilee. What I think was most impressive was in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing 
and it was closing in on him. And all of a sudden, he was realizing what this whole thing was all about. And the darkness was closing in. I love, you know, uh, Mel Gibson's uh, movie, The Passion of the Christ, that scene in the garden. I tell you, I was riveted. I was just, I said, look, this man, it's all coming down on him now. All of it. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing the cross was coming, He said, if possible, let this cup go from me. But nevertheless, Father, not my will. What? But your will be done. And in saying that, he went into the darkness, separated from the Father for the first time in all eternity, and he chose suffering over ease. Folks, I believe the greatest anthem, somebody somebody wrote this. Somebody said this, and one author said this. He said, I believe that the greatest anthem of praise the church has ever sung has been in the groans of its martyrs and of those who would not quit because they had a faith in Jesus Christ. They lived for a better world and a better time. Yeah. Who's qualified to teach a theology of suffering? Is it someone with a load of academic degrees? No. It is someone with stripes and wounds. Someone who has lived it. Someone who has suffered. Suffering is not going to make it as a plank on anybody's campaign. I got news for you. Yeah, come with me and suffer. Oh, gee. Sure, we'll do that. Nobody's signing up for that. Listen. But love endures. It perseveres. Love that makes God visible to the world rejoices with the truth. It protects. It trusts. It hopes. It perseveres. I'm fi- uh, uh, look, I'm, I'm finished. Let me just say this. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, John summed up God. You know what he said? He said, God is love. God is love. And you know what I realized as you go over that passage? I realized that as we're looking, we're looking at 1 Corinthians, you know, chapter 13, and we're looking at verses 4 through 6 and 8, and, you know, been there for these last few weeks. Verses 4 through 6, you could substitute the word Jesus for the word love. You know that? You know what it would sound like? It would sound like this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. Jesus always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Then you know what else I realized? I realized that if the Apostle Paul was writing this to the church at Corinth, then this is what he wants them to do too. And in some measure, and in some percentage, they could do this too. Increasing a little bit at a time, day by day, they could exhibit agape love. So that the world will step back and he will say, as they said of those Amish parents, what in the world are these parents, what are these people about? Why do these people do what they do? Why do these people show the love that they do? 
We do it for the glory of God. So to end our series, and as a sort of reminder of what God wants to do in us and what, what he's already started to do, I, I want to I ask you to stand right now. Would you stand right where you are? All go around the auditorium, up in the balcony, just stand. I want to repeat these verses right now. But this is what I want to do. A beautiful passage of scripture. Instead of putting Jesus, the word love, and instead of substituting the word love for Jesus, I want you to insert your own name as a benediction for this series. Put that up right now, would you? I want you to put your name in there. Not because any of these things are always true of you. We get it, right? Amen to that? We get it. But because you want them to be. Because you want them to be. And we're going to do this, and I'm going to say, Tim is patient, Tim is kind, don't do that. You say, you say your name. And let's read it together, shall we? Let's read. Tim is patient, Tim is kind, Tim does not envy, Tim does not boast, Tim is not proud, I do not dishonor others, I am not self-seeking, I am not easily angered, I keep no record of wrong, Tim does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. I always protect, I always trust, I always hope, I always persevere. Tim never fails to the glory of God. Love that makes God visible to the world. It rejoices with truth. It protects, it trusts, it hopes. It perseveres. Father in heaven, we read those words and uh, wow, I feel a little hypocritical reading some of those things and putting my name in there. But I do know one thing. I do know that I'm further along than I was last year, I think. I really do think so. And I think that's true of every believer here, oh God. Unless they're going through some time and lift them out of that time, oh God. Lift them out of that, that cavern that they've fallen into. But I think you're, you're doing this in us. And I, I pray, and our prayer at the Crossing Church is that we as individuals and we as a church would exhibit the love of God exhibited through Jesus Christ who went to the cross not because we were such great people, but because we were the worst of sinners. Remind us of that this week and uh, remind us that uh, we are a community of love. Let us love as Jesus loved. In his name we pray. Amen.